Welcome to Shoot This Now, the podcast where every week we talk about stories that should be made into TV shows and movies. My name is Tim Malloy. Hello, thank you for being here. My wonderful guests this week are Joe Coscarelli and Allie Watkins from the New York Times, here to talk about a story they've written about your favorite rapper, Takashi69. Or you've never heard of Takashi69, and that's totally okay, because what we're also talking about this week is something we're all obsessed with, authenticity. Now, none of you should care what I think about rap and authenticity because I'm hopelessly aged and out of touch. But I was still wondering, after we recorded this, how we started down the path of demanding so much authenticity from rappers. I think it started when Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five made the first rap masterpiece, a bouncy Trojan horse of a banger about poverty and urban neglect that they called The Message, thus encouraging literal-minded listeners ever since to appoint rappers as messengers. And I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of serious, because I feel that there was a point in our society when rappers were talking about things that no one else was talking about. They're talking about really difficult issues, neglected people and neglected neighborhoods that no one else was doing a good job of covering. And if they're going to be messengers, we demand that they be hyper-accurate messengers, imposing standards of authenticity that we simply don't put on our pop stars, who are often celebrated for indulging in fantasy rather than reality. Probably the most common type of rap attack is to accuse a rival of being inauthentic. If you don't believe me, look at the way that Pusha T went in on Drake this year, subjecting him to the kind of background check that Disney is probably giving whoever's going to direct the next Guardians of the Galaxy. And maybe it's changing, but it seems like audiences demand even more authenticity from rappers than other rappers do. We want them to be not too hard and not too soft. If they're going to say that they're talking about a truth that you won't get from police and politicians, we demand that they have street-level wisdom and that they actually know what they're talking about. But at the same time, if they cavort with actual gangsters or get arrested, we turn on them very quickly and ask them why they can't just focus on their music. It's a really fine line, and some rappers walk it really well, and some don't. And of course, there are a lot of rappers who aren't caught in this line because they never had any street connections, never claimed to. But today we're talking about the ones who are on the line, like Takashi 69 One last thing before we get into the interview. I think there's maybe no better evidence of how effective rappers have been as cultural communicators and messengers than the fact that the New York Times wrote a story like this and routinely read stories like this. When I was a kid, it was a rare thing to see a mainstream newspaper take this kind of serious, deeply researched look at a hip-hop star, much less a hip-hop star with a weird name who not everybody knew. But hip-hop artists were so effective at sharing their music and messages that hip-hop jumped from the parks and parties where it was lovingly nurtured by young black artists and inventors to the radio and TV and now to the internet where the gatekeepers are gone. And now newspapers like the Times devote serious resources to covering it as the essential cultural force that it is. Thanks to Brad Fisher at the Times for making Joe and Allie sound so great. If anything in this podcast doesn't sound up to par audio-wise, the fault is totally mine. Please enjoy this interview. I absolutely love the article that you wrote. I've been hearing the name Takashi69 for a long time, mostly in news alerts from TMZ. And just wondering, who is this dude? And your story is the first one where I finally think I understood him. So thank you. Yeah, it was really interesting, you know, as somebody. So I'm a music reporter uh, in the culture section and Ali is a metro reporter uh, here at the Times. And, you know, obviously Takashi has been a big presence in my world for the last, you know, year, year and a half um, but there really had been no, and it all sort of existed ephemerally, like in Instagram live videos that then people upload to YouTube and, you know, these songs that were released 
on some weird obscure channel but not on official uh, on official streaming services and and there was all this stuff sort of in the ether but i don't think anyone had really put it in like a linear narrative uh so that's sort of what we wanted to do you know for a general audience and it is interesting like i feel like people who know about 69 know so much about him because he broadcasts so much of his life uh but there isn't really one thing you can read that uh tells you who he is and why he is uh and hopefully you know we did some version of that well who who is he and why he is <laughs> who is he and, and, and why is he yeah, I mean, I'm coming at this. Joe is is far more the resident expert on the music side, and as he said, I'm coming at this from a metro perspective. So I kind of got a, an incredibly fast introduction to who Takashi is, where he came from, and and as Joe said, you kind of had to piece it all together through these Instagram videos. And um, Joe, please pepper in here with some of your expertise. But the the most concise way to kind of describe who Takashi is, he's he's kind of this. Um, he is a meme, for lack of a better descriptor. Yeah, um, human meme. A human, a walking, talking meme who who kind of was able to grasp onto this viral wave through, like, he, he almost, like, hit all of these viral moments at really key times, right? Some of this was just an alignment of timing where, you know, his Instagram, his Instagram live stuff went crazy. He, he did all these bizarre stunts with fashion and, and they would always catch on. Um, and he almost like exploded so quickly. And, and then, you know, you could see through our story, you trace it from this viral meme character he created and then he tries to merge that with his real life and then and then suddenly that's where things start to get complicated for him and his music so along the way he sort of becomes a rapper right and he does this thing which we've seen increasingly in the industry in the last couple of years where you know you have someone like the catch me outside girl who you know goes viral on Dr. Phil and then you know that's her 15 milliseconds of fame and then the question is how do we make this a sustainable career? And increasingly the answer for that people end up with is rap music. Uh, you know, Cardi B is another example. She started on Instagram. Uh, then she was on a reality show. And then all of a sudden she's the biggest artist in the world. So uh, Takashi 69 was sort of moving on a, on a parallel path to these people uh, around the same time. And so, you know, he starts off as a kid from Bushwick, Brooklyn, who, you know, he this is something I, I wish we could have gotten in the story. But he uh, he worked at a bodega for uh, for years and like people knew him from around town. And now you can you know, someone uh, contacted me this week who uh, was had been a, a customer at the bodega where he worked at the counter and they had a sort of relationship and he watched this kid go from you know just a, a normal Brooklyn kid in Bushwick Bedsty area to someone who started wearing you know shirts with these uh horrific phrases on them you know he he like had a jacket that just said HIV for instance you know just this sort of like shock tactic stuff and then you know he he tells the guy uh who you know is just buying his candy and soda or whatever it is from the bodega like oh like now i'm rapping like check out my music videos uh so he starts making these really extreme music videos uh and then you know he's this sort of anime inspired character making music that sounds like a mix between like gangster rap and heavy metal and he's screaming and he's you know there's one early video where it's there's a cut and it's like meanwhile in Slovakia and then you have this like weird white guy wearing Supreme in like a cornfield 
you know, he was just making this really sort of outre, like extreme music. Uh, and but he was so compelling visually, uh, you know, in, in as these months and years go on, he starts getting the number 69 tattooed all over his body. Uh, you know, he says he has it more than 200 times, including on his face. He has a giant tattoo of the villain character from Saw on his cheek. Um, you know, he has this he has this rainbow hair. He has these uh, insane rainbow grills uh, on his teeth and. You know, and then all of a sudden he's viral enough that he's a real rapper. Uh, And that sort of brings us up to our story because that's, you know, once he has enough clout, as they say, uh, online, he sort of falls in with a local Brooklyn gang, uh, a subset of the Bloods. And all of a sudden, you know, he's more of a street rapper and he's surrounded by guys with red bandanas. And if you believe you know, the federal indictment that came down a few weeks ago, you know, he basically enlists in a violent gang that, uh, you know, deals drugs and robs their enemies and beats people up and, you know, is responsible for uh, shootings around town, including like in broad daylight outside the Barclays Center. Uh, so, you know, basically he the, he lives this whirlwind life uh, for, you know, two years. Uh, and at the same time, he's ends up at the top of the charts and in federal prison. And you know about him through music. Ali, you're coming from the Metro perspective. Were you just like, who the hell is this guy? Yeah, I mean, the, the idea to kind of combine these two threads started even before the federal indictment, actually, because it, for as much as he's a music story, he's also very much a New York story, whether it's a, a law enforcement story, whether it's a violent crime in Brooklyn story, um, or or like the identity of Brooklyn changing or hip hop in Brooklyn changing story. Um, so that was, a, I think, a really interesting Combination, and I think one of the reasons the story became so comprehensive is because we were able to tie a lot of, you know, so much of the Takashi story is like, is a New York story too. And obviously, I've learned a lot of this from Joe in the last couple of weeks. But you know, it's it's been a while since Brooklyn has had a, a real kind of rap icon to gravitate towards, and Takashi kind of fit that mold but didn't and and became this persona who was so polarizing in in that New York um niche market that it, I think it just became a really interesting story about New York hip hop too. Yeah, I think if you look back at the last moment there was a, this level of buzz around uh Brooklyn rap, you end up sort of with the same ending which is a, a rico case basically you know uh, a, an indictment and that was a couple years ago uh with bobby Schmurda, uh who was you know a young rapper from flatbush uh and he basically came up with his crew gs9 they had this uh huge hit that went viral because of a vine then all of a sudden he's on the radio he's you know about he gets signed to a major label he's about to be one of the biggest rappers in the world and then you know the the nypd swoops in and uh, basically gets him and all of his friends on a on a gang case. And I think he's an interesting uh, sort of inverse of what happened with 6 9 because you basically, in, in the case of Bobby Shmurda, who, who I also covered, uh, you know, at the Times, I think in 2015, uh, you have a kid who, who grows up in, in, 
in Brooklyn and sort of uh, is raised in gang life and rap is his way out, right? It's his salvation and he's about, he's on the cusp of changing his life and it's too late because, you know, the police have been watching him, you know, and his friends uh, have guns and sell drugs and whatever. With Takashi 69 you have a rapper who basically gets into gang life after he's already a rapper to sort of bolster his street credibility and keep him safe. Uh, and, and you know, I think these these stories have a lot of the same elements uh, but and, and potentially the same ending, which is prison time, uh, but the the way they the way they came to prominence uh you know they they had they had different paths but a, a lot of the same tools uh and i just think you know those those two stories together sort of give you a picture of of where new york rap music has been in the last five years yeah when i when i first reached out about the story i said it reminded me of the kurt vonnegut quote from mother night which is one of my favorite books we are what we we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. And it seems like he started off maybe pretending to be a gangster, and now he's actually at huge risk of going to prison. Yeah. So the yeah, the, and the other the other sort of main character in this story is this guy known as Shadi, uh, who you know is referred to often um, by his sort of catchphrase and sort of uh, gang set name Treyway. Uh, which became, you know, Six Nines sort of go to thing. They were calling themselves the New Death Row Records, you know, sort of invoking Suge Knight and and Tupac and all of that. And and this is a guy who basically inserts himself into Six Nines' career, and Six Nines sort of welcomes him in as a sort of street mentor, protector figure. Uh, and you know, and their partnership sort of deteriorates. Uh, right before this indictment happens, and now they're all arrested together on the same charges, but they're at odds. And part of I think the the, the difference with the Takashi story, and it's something that we actually really wrestled with when the indictment came out, is that um, you know you say he, he was kind of it's un, it's still unclear I think wh- who he actually was in this entire structure. Like what was he pretending to be? What was he actually being? Um, and from what we know so far of how the federal case was was handled, it's interesting, you know, we discussed this, there still seems to be these gaps as to how involved Takashi was in, in all of this. And you have this incident where the FBI approaches him the day before he's arrested and says, hey, your crew wants you dead, effectively. Do you want us to help you out? Um, and he passes on that offer. And as you're kind of reading the indictment, and his lawyer appears to be taking this tack, too, is that there you don't really have him necessarily holding the gun or pulling the trigger. So there there are these almost still these lanes of salvation in ways for Takashi that, you know, would obviously be incredibly complicated for him to take. But it just creates this very complicated, tangled web about who he is and where where do we draw that line between who you're pretending to be online and what you're encouraging in real life. Why do you think it is that rap music is so burdened with the need for authenticity that people will hook up with street gangs and things like that? I mean, you don't expect when Billy Joel talks about Goodnight Saigon, we know that he wasn't really in um, Saigon and we don't care. Like, why, why do rappers need to go to these extremes? I mean, I'd say rap is and it isn't obsessed with authenticity. Like, think back to... You know, almost 10 years ago at this point, Rick Ross is, you know, one of the biggest rappers in the world. And he's sort of 
talking about this life of opulence as a crime boss. And, you know, he's port of Miami. He's shipping in kilos, you know, if you if you hear him on record to 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 South Florida. And he's this sort of larger than life Scarface figure. And then he gets into a beef with 50 Cent. And it turns out, in fact, he was a corrections officer uh, in a previous life, you know, and no one really cares. Rick Ross is still at this point, an elder statesman in hip hop and considered, you know, part of the firmament. Like, uh, you know, uh, there's it's it's complicated. Like people care until they don't care. Right. Drake, he's the biggest rapper in the world. He's the biggest artist in the world. He is from Canada. He was on a teen soap opera. He you know, whether he he has a song called Started from the Bottom at, you know, people make jokes about it, but ultimately no one really cares. I think for six nine, it was as much uh, for the performance of it, for how it looked online, and you know he has this music video Gummo, which is where he sort of debuts his his uh, supposed gang affiliations, uh, you know, in, on a bed sty stoop with all these dudes with you know their 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 red flags, and uh, it is you know it is visually striking, but I think there's another element to it. Um, and, you know, I think we explored this a little bit in the piece, uh, and there's still probably more to be done about it, but gang culture continues to exist, you know, on a sort of subterranean level, uh, within hip hop. And, you know, when you are living a flashy lifestyle, you're posting it all on Instagram, people know where you are, you're playing shows in strange cities, there are these sort of informal networks, uh, of, uh, you know, sort of street level connections where, you know, people keep each other safe. There's a this idea of checking in. You know, you go to a town like Houston and you pay your respects to, you know, the people who are both maybe in the hip hop world and in, in the drug trade. Uh, and, you know, they and there's, you know, there tends to be money exchange. There's uh, mutual respect exchange. And 6 9 wanted to play this supervillain character uh, where he sort of laughed in the face of all these other supposed gangsters in rap music and he said you're fake like you know come test my gangster come try and get me and to do that he you know he's part of the reason he was so successful is that he's basically stoking internet beef uh with with rival rappers and in a really donald trump like way right he's he's giving he's giving nicknames he's saying foul things that you know you think a famous person isn't supposed to say uh, and then he needs backup. You know, he's he's just he's he's just a kid, and and he needs sort of muscle. And I think that's not an insignificant uh, part of why he became so deeply enmeshed uh, with with these guys who are, you know, alleged members of uh, the Nine Trey Gangster Bloods. It's funny. I thought about Trump too, in the sense of just say something to keep them watching you and keep them paying attention to you. And it doesn't necessarily matter what it is as long as you've got their attention. I mean, watching the Gummo video, not only because of all the red bandanas everywhere, but like he says the N-word so many times in that song. And it's like, I know that's not like, he's not like the first person who's ever used the word, but it's like, he's also, he's Mexican and Puerto Rican first. So that sort of hit my ear weird. And also I was listening to it at work, which was probably not the best place to listen to it. (laughs) Sure. But it's just like it's really striking, like how much he's going to just go for shock value, and that's almost the least of the shock value. I mean, obviously the tattoos on his face, the clothes, the rainbow head. Um, I'm wondering, is he actually? And granted, these things are subjective, but 
is he actually talented or is this just a lot of sizzle? I think he is a talented performer. I think he is an extremely talented uh, brand manager, for lack of a better term. And I think in his early work especially, he really was doing something pretty unique uh, and pretty shocking, which is, you know, he was screaming, you know, which, you know, reminded me of other, you know, the history of New York rap. You know, you have you have like Onyx and DMX and uh, MOP and this sort of pure uh, aggression. And it's all about rhythm and it's all about this grit and this feel. And he was doing that but mixed with the internet. So, you know, he's bringing in rap and pop punk and, you know, all these all these sort of weird uh, rock, sorry, uh, heavy metal, all these sort of weird genres. And and it was still catchy. Like he, you know, there's something, there was something really compelling about what he was doing musically. Now, do I think he's a good rapper? Definitely not. If you listen to his new album, which came out after his arrest, Dummy Boy, he sort of reverted to this more conventional mode, um, and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't. He doesn't have good lyrics. He's not even especially funny. Um, you know, he rhymes the same words over and over. His his touchstones are pretty much just you know drugs, guns, and women. Uh, he's not. He's not an MC. But I think. But I think he is. You know, it, I tend to think when people get as big as he got, like. It's, it's not all smoke and mirrors, you know? When if you listen back to some of his, his very early podcasts when he first hit the scene, a lot of the people talking to him are saying he first came to their attention because of his videos. And, uh, you know, as Joe said, you can really see a shift with Gummo. Like, when you look at some of his earlier videos, um, his very first music video, 6 9 which is was removed from YouTube, I think, multiple times because it was so explicit. Um, but he, he still, he was doing something different as far in music videos generally, I think, and also as far as hip hop music videos go, it's something a lot of the people who first kind of promoted him and got him on the airwaves were saying is that, you know, it wasn't necessarily about the sound, but the visuals and the videos were so striking and different. And I think it just really caught a lot of people's eyes um, in a lane that tends to be pretty standard. Do you know if Gummo is named for the Harmony Corinne movie? Is do you have any idea where he got the word Gummo? <laughs> you know, I thought I thought that as well, and uh, I think you know we'll we'll get to Harmony Corinne maybe further in this podcast. Uh, but I I have to think I have to think it is named for the movie, but I don't know. He his his titles tend to be these sort of nonsense uh, little words and phrases that don't really mean anything and don't really have anything to do with the song. But I think, you know, knowing what, having spent enough time with his social media and talking to people who know him, he seems like the kind of person who would be a fan of the sort of shocking images that Harmony Curran uses, especially, you know, in in a film like Goma. Yeah, the kind of like casual grotesquerie and how uncomfortable it is. And a little bit of kids too. Um, Definitely. It, and interesting. Okay. Because he's so young. I didn't know if he when he would have seen these little indie movies. Yeah, you know, the internet is a crazy thing. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I'll, you know, if, we, if I ever get a chance to, to actually meet the guy, I'll definitely ask him about his, his taste in Harmony Korean movies. And it seems like a good transition to movies. Um, this seems like it's 
the most cinematic thing imaginable. I mean, it's like a way more high stakes eight mile. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And it reminds me a little bit of White Boy Rick, too, which I guess Mm -hmm. wasn't super successful, but was a good movie. And a great yarn. (laughs) Yeah, super good yarn. Um, Did you both think while you were writing this, God, when is this movie coming out? I mean, it's almost like I don't know how you make it more crazy in a movie than it is in real life. Yeah, you know, like it's, maybe it's a doc. I don't know. Yeah. Like maybe it's the OJ Made in America for 20 years from now, you know, like the eight-hour documentary, <laughs> um, you know, with with Takashi 6 9 with his grays coming in uh, next to his, like, lime and lemon hair, you know, Uh but yeah, I think I think maybe some editors said said it to us along the yeah. way, like, oh, like this is you know this is like a, a film. Like if you put this in a movie, people wouldn't believe it. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Is there? Would you like to see this movie? I mean, is there a way you think it could be filmed? I, I I'm kind of interested in the idea of just the guy at the bodega who sees this kid changing, and I don't know, maybe he's the narrator telling the story to someone else. Yeah, that's sort of a good audience surrogate. I could see it. I mean, I could see it as sort of, you know, a little bit biopic, but not in the sense of like a shade out of Compton or the, you know, the Tupac movie that came out a few years ago, which is very, you know, behind the music, Wikipedia page, cradle to grave type thing. You know, I'd want it to be a little bit more impressionistic, a little bit dirtier, uh, as Ali said, like it's a real New York story. Um you know, but I think I think you do want to see the the transition from the kid at the bodega to the guy getting photographed on the street wearing the HIV shirt to getting his first face tattoo, which is sort of a, you know, once you take once you take that step, that's uh, I'm never going to work in an office again. Um, you know, you're 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 pretty much conscripting yourself to a certain sort of life. Uh, and then, you know, then the gang members come in to the picture. Uh, and then obviously there's this crazy fall from, I'm not going to say grace, uh, but, you know, and it all happens in such an accelerated timeline. He's such a compelling character. I mean, I think that's where, that's almost what I want more of. And I still want more of, I want to know, like Joe said, like how you get from point A to point B. Um, because he's one of those real contradictions and that he broadcasts so much of it that you feel like, you know, all of it, but you know, that there is clearly a story, you know, that happens once the Instagram live stream turns off that you really want to know. Yeah. And, you know, I said the term supervillain, which I think is in maybe the opening sentence of our, of our piece. And that comes from him. You know, he said, I wanted to be a supervillain because heroes always end up dying, uh, you know, but supervillains, you know, they, they usually get away. Uh, and and thinking about it in a comic book sense, like there is this sort of origin story because, you know, when he basically starts his uh, spiral when he's 13 and his, and his father figure uh, is killed, you know, and he is is murdered basically on the street. And, you know, he, he said he showed up uh, pretty soon after uh, after he, after the killing and, you know, sees the dead body and then drops out of school. And, you know, one thing we sort of, glossed over which i don't think you can really discount from the six nine uh the six nine tale is that when he's uh 18 going on 19 he is arrested and eventually pleads guilty to um use of a child in a sexual performance um because he 
in his effort to shock people. And, you know, he says explicitly to the police, I was doing this for my image. He basically meets some guys at a recording studio. They seem, you know, like sort of a big deal to him at the time because he's nothing. He ends up going to, with them to a party, uh, some sort of hangout, and and there's a woman there, and the guys are, you know, having having sex with her, and he's sort of, uh, you know, posing for pictures and you know, touching her, uh, in, inappropriately, and and it turns out that that this girl is is 13 years old, um, and you know that's a that's a really really horrifying thing, and I think the fact that he rose to the fame that he did with this, uh, you know, this sort of skeleton in his closet that came out pretty early on in his rise. Um, I think that really, you know, that's a, that's a pretty horrible, just tragic, just disgusting thing to, to, to think about. And I wouldn't, you know, I, this is all armchair psychology, but like, I think his sort of linking with, the Treyway guys coincides with the internet basically finding out that he had these charges and all of a sudden it's, you know, you look at his Instagram comments and it's pedo this, you know, pedophile, you're, you're, you're disgusting. Like, you know, and he, he basically has to power through it. Um, and he did. And that's sort of its own, you know, shocking subplot. Yeah. That one really blows my mind because especially with, everything happening in Hollywood now, that is enough, that is more than enough to completely sink somebody's career forever and put them in prison. And the fact that he's still going strong and this is kind of like another, just another thing in his in his record is, is astonishing to me. It's really bad. How yeah. did he come back from that? I mean, he's he's arguably more successful after that happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a really extreme time right now uh, in hip hop and especially in this sort of generation of young rapper that comes up from the Internet and gets this insane fan base. Uh, you know, the story of XXX Tentacion, who is referred to in our piece, is, you know, equally horrifying and shocking and ultimately tragic. Uh, he was murdered over the summer in an armed robbery um, at 20 years old. And, you know, he he's arguably bigger than six nine more more famous more listened to he has an album coming out friday uh you know the day after we're recording this it has kanye west on it probably be the number one album in in the country um and you know his rise sort of coincided with uh people finding out about these charges that he beat up his pregnant girlfriend in a really horrific way and you know her deposition is out there talking about him torturing her and that's another one that he just he just sort of plowed through and and kept on and you know six nine did interviews where he was asked about these charges and he sort of brushed them off and you know again like look at the president of the united states like we're in this moment where at the same time people are being held accountable for their actions for instance in hollywood and yet other people are getting away with what seems beyond the pale so you know i think he just flooded he flooded the zone also with so much content that this just became another tiny data point in his biography and his rehabilitation from that was helped along by the court system frankly i think there was a lot of consternation um among law enforcement that he 
got off the way that he did at his um, the sentencing in October for all of this, where the judge basically says, you know, we're going to put you on probation for this many years. You need to stay away from gang members. You need to go to counseling. Um, and, you know, you can look at it in one of two ways, right? There's this one side that this is, it was this very complicated situation that he was in. You know, he says he was young, but it's also this really horrific thing. Yeah, and he said he didn't know how old the, know how the girl old was. was. You know, so, he said he thought she was of age. Yeah. So. so there was this leniency given to him by this judge that, you know, I think became very polarizing among law enforcement and people who, anyone who was paying attention, anyone who was paying attention to it. Um, but th- I think there was a real, that that became a, an avenue for him to kind of rehabilitate himself. Now, granted, a month later, he's arrested on a RICO case, but it's still, you know, when you, when you say, how does someone recover from something like that? Um, that was certainly a platform from which to do it. And it, but it was still following him around, yeah. I think. Yeah, uh, you know, and basically the timeline, as Ali said, from when he's granted uh, probation for this charge, you know, it, the sentencing had been pushed back all this time because he's had to get his GED. He had to do this community service. Um, and, you know, basically from the moment he gets he gets off uh then that's when everything goes really downhill because then he goes to a lunch with the head of his record label, uh, you know, at Philippe in Manhattan. And the judge had just said, stay away from these gang members. They want to come to the lunch too. They're being kept out. There's a clash at the door between security and a guy ends up shot. Uh, and, you know, he lived and he was also indicted along with, you know, these other, these other men. So, you know, and that was basically six nine choosing sides, and he said, "You know, I'm I'm with my record label. I'm I'm gonna be a legitimate star. I'm gonna start to leave these gang members behind." And you know, then according to uh, lawyers in court, you know, a couple weeks later, because six nine had had denounced Treyway and fired, you know, these these gang members who had helped his career along, they were heard on wiretap saying they basically wanted to kill him uh, and that, you know, Shadi, this this guy who had been his sort of his A1, you know, protector and the his right-hand man and pseudo-manager, um, you know, you have these these alleged gang higher-ups saying it's now Shadi's job to, to make him pay for disrespecting our gang. So you have him now indicted alongside the same dudes who want him dead. Were either of you in court when he had to actually renounce his gang ties and basically say, no, this is all an act? I mean, I can't think of anything more, in a way, humiliating for somebody who has presented himself as a gangster to have to say, no, this was all fake. I'm just doing this for my rap career. Was that the that was the sentencing in October where he yep. did all that? Yeah, we didn't. We had a, a stringer there, but it's yeah, also, I was out of town. We had a we had a reporter there helping us out. Yeah, but it's interesting because he was given youthful offender status, so you know people could go to that court, the entire court proceedings, and be there. But since he was given youthful offender status, all of that is sealed now. Um, so you you can't even get any transcripts from the hearing. Is that right though that he did have to basically say, "This is an act. I'm an actor." Yeah, I don't know that he had to, but that was his certainly his legal strategy. Um and it was one it was one that the judge, you know, she bought. And I think that was actually weirdly for as 
complicated and dark as this all was, that was weirdly refreshing for me to see, you know, uh, at the sentencing hearing when the judge said, basically, I can't decide how you market yourself. I can only decide when you break the law, you know, and basically the prosecutors were arguing that his various other small time arrests since the uh, child sex case were a violation of uh, his plea deal. And uh, he was arguing that it was not. And, you know, after so many years of, you know, you always hear about rappers lyrics being used against them in court um, and, you know, sort of basically them not making the distinction between this is an artistic expression and versus, you know, this is documentary, this is real life. And it was it was weirdly progressive, I would dare to say, to see the judge say, like, you know, I, I can't choose how how you act, uh, you know, as a as an entertainer. Um, but, you know, don't do any real crimes. <laughs> and, you know, she gave him enough rope and, and he seemingly hanged himself. So the judge is essentially saying, like, you can rap about whatever you want to. I don't want to get this wrong, but it sounds like the judge is saying you can rap about whatever you want to the way that a writer can write about whatever they want to. Rappers are writers, of course. Um, But the way any other writer can write whatever they want to, you're not held responsible for the fictions you create, but you are responsible for things you do in real life. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, That is refreshing. That's cool. It was yeah. I mean, as like I said, as someone really new to this story, you almost you come in and you get your initial dose of six nine, and you have a certain idea of who he is. And it was really interesting to me, and it kind of culminated in, in reading about the sentencing hearing. Is that he he does become he he is an incredibly conflicting character, but he has this. There's this part of you that wants to be sympathetic in a way to him and I think it really was captured by the judge and that you you recognizing this is a 23 year old kid also when you look at him in some of these podcasts you you see these flashes of adolescence um you know that was kind of stunted and I think that was that um that sentencing you know as I said I think it was really polarizing among law enforcement who saw it but I think there was another camp of people who saw that is is very empathetic and and forward leaning yeah and you know again i've i've talked to a lot of people in the industry who who know him as a person and this is not to forgive what he's done and you know i think ultimately he will be he will be tried or he will go through the system in 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 an appropriate way but you know people said off camera he was danny he was a sweet kid he was easy to be around uh, he was really funny. You know, these are these are accounts that I've heard firsthand. Uh, again, I never met him, but, um, you know, and I think uh, and I think that is like it is OK for for entertainers to to play characters. And, you know, a lot of rap is professional wrestling. Um, and, you know, I say this all the time, like, you know, you need a heel. And and he he knew he saw that that lane was open. He took a lot of the blueprint, I think, that 50 Cent laid before him, you know, another a sort of godfather of New York rap at this point. Um, you know, somebody who made a lot of enemies, who played this sort of larger than life tough guy uh, and who made a lot of money doing it. I think 50 always stayed on the right side of the law. And, you know, 6 9 I think not in small part because of the role Instagram and social media play in the lives of young people these days. He, he got a little seemingly mixed up about what was real life and what was make-believe if this were ever to be made into a feature film or a people versus oj simpson 10-part series <sighs> anything that wasn't a documentary could anyone play him besides him 
we we just we were trying to brainstorm about this and we were having trouble. I mean, I uh, my mind and heart and stomach keep going to Shia LaBeouf, uh, who to me is like the thinking man's James Franco, uh, in that he can he is like just enough of a dirtbag. He's really interested in method and in transforming himself. He may be a little too old, but then again, like six nine has sort of this weathered face, you know, and doesn't exactly, as Ali said, look like the picture of youth. Um, I just think it would be absurd enough. Uh, I don't know. I just I, you need someone with an edge, you know. Uh, There's all these people who kind of have parts that would work, but I cannot think of someone who captures all of it yeah and you know he he is of, of mexican and puerto rican descent so uh you know maybe there's someone in telenovelas who really has like that 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 certain spark uh that i don't know um but you know the other the other name and face that were coming to me are and this is sort of a a, a deep dive but uh this kid emery cohen do you know him the actor i, I love yeah, that guy so- he's in brooklyn Yes, he's in Brooklyn, and he plays a sort of straight-laced uh, Italian young guy in Brooklyn, which I loved. But the reason I thought of him for Six Nine is uh, his role in Place Beyond the Pines, uh, that Bradley Cooper, Ryan Gosling movie uh, from a few years back, and he basically plays this like dirtbag high school kid who like sells pills and is like sort of a tough guy, uh, and you know talks in like a unplaceable sort of like accent you know uh and he just he's like you know he's like beating people up and he's just like a a, like bully i don't know he has i feel like he's a really he's a really good actor and i could see him disappearing into this role i I love emery cohen and two years ago i was like he should play han solo he's the guy (laughs) (laughs) yeah better than uh whoever they got um sorry sorry alden um but and and but you know the other thing the other thing is, like, I could see a non-actor. You know what I mean? I could see plucking a kid from the streets of Brooklyn who would really fall into this role. And I think that's how I'd want to see this film, you know, is with a lot of sort of non-actor types. Like, you know, uh, I, I'm i imagining it. And, you know, I was talking to some friends about this last night. Uh, shout out to Matt. But he said the Safdie brothers. And I'm like, yes. Like, like the Safdie brothers could do this story. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I'm a, I guess if if it was a white actor, there could be blowback for that. But I feel like there's there's going to be so much controversy around any movie made with Takashi Six Nine that would be like number seven <laughs> on the list of controversies. All right. Um, <laughs> is there anything else you all wanted to mention? I I feel like I, it, it's just it's really thrilling to get to talk to the people who wrote this really fascinating article and to get to learn even more things that you didn't get to put in. This is just really cool, and thank you. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing to me is just like where this goes. His the, the biggest thing with the Takashi sixty nine story is that it's not over yet, right? Yeah, there's still another shoe to drop probably. Yeah. Um, you know, there are there's talk he could cooperate, he could become a witness, he could flip on these gang members, um, you know, he could serve his time. I don't like he could go to trial and try to get off. I mean, like, who knows? 